You know, one of the best parts about being a dad is making your kids feel awkward. <laughs> it's just starting, like our oldest is 10 now, and I notice it's happening more and more like, Dad, that's awkward. What you just said is awkward. That made me feel awkward. One of the things that makes Jaden feel awkward is a lot of times we'll be driving down the road or something as a family going somewhere, and I'll see somebody running. And especially if it's cold or windy, what do I, what do I say? Now I'm making you feel awkward again, huh? <laughs> I usually say like, you go, man, you go, girl. And that's because I, I enjoy running. I go out there and I know there's days where I don't feel like it, but sometimes you just got to press through and keep on keeping on. So I see another runner and I say, you go, you go, man. And Jaden says, Dad, that's awkward. But, you know, I feel the same way when I see someone growing in their walk with Jesus, expressing a desire to grow closer to Him, to obey Him more fully. That moves me inside. I'm meeting right now with a guy at the church that wants to get baptized, and he said, I don't want to just get baptized. I want to talk about what baptism means, because he's already trusted Jesus as his Savior. But I also want to talk about what it looks like to walk with Jesus day in and day out. As a pastor, that makes me say, yeah, you go, man. You see, he does, he's not content with just a one-and-done one dunk and, all right, back to life as usual. What's it look like to walk with Jesus day in and day out? What pastor is going to turn that down, right? That made me excited. Because when it comes down to it, listen, salvation, as we know, comes only through the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Only through faith in that grace do we receive salvation? But listen to this. Becoming more like Jesus in your Christian walk takes work. It takes discipline. It requires a proper spiritual diet. It requires proper spiritual exercise. And it requires that we have the proper motivation. Just like in physical exercise, if I don't have a good motivation, I'm not going to keep going. Same with spiritual training. I've got to have a good motivation. Now listen, of course you cannot become more like Jesus without grace and without faith. Okay, you need those. You need Him. But it does not come automatically either. It does not come automatically. Do you understand that? It does not come automatically. It requires us to make some choices. It requires some spiritual sweat to become more like Jesus. Dallas Willard said this. I, I love this. He said, Faith is opposed to earning. You cannot earn God's favor. That comes through Jesus Christ. But faith is not opposed to effort. And I think some of us have confused the two. Faith is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. Faith and effort can go together and should go together in the Christian life as we cooperate with what Jesus wants to do in our hearts. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. If you were with us last 
week, you remember Timothy was dealing with some false teachers. And Paul is telling young Timothy how to deal with them. And he's going to pick up that theme, and he's going to say, say, what's the best fix to false teaching in the church? And three things we're going to look at today. A proper spiritual diet, that's one way to fix false teaching. Proper spiritual exercise and proper spiritual motivation. Jump with me into verse 6. Paul says to Timothy, If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. These things are the truths that would counter the false teachings. He said, if you're going to be a good teacher, you've got to counter those false teachings with the truth. And when he says, if you point these things out, it's almost like he's saying, if you lay these things out before them. It's like when you go to a restaurant and the waiter brings out the food. If you're at Texas Roadhouse, he says, here's your, your onion, here's your steak, here's your chili, here's your salad. He lays it out there. He's saying, Timothy, do that with the truth. Lay it out there for the people. One man said it's almost the picture of if you got false teaching like this dangerous river with rapids, the good teacher places the truths like stepping stones for the people to get across those dangerous currents of false teaching. He says if you want to be a good minister, that word can be translated servant. If you want to serve your people well, Timothy, point out the truths of God's word. So they can avoid all the false teaching in this world. That leads us to what we said was the first point, the proper spiritual diet. Look at the second half of verse 6. He says, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. The word nourished, the tense it's in means constantly nourished. Just like if you were to go to Denny's on Saturday morning and you hadn't eaten all week and you expected one meal that week to fill you up and then you went five or six days and you find yourself hungry again and you call up Denny's and say, hey, I'm disappointed with your food. I ate there five days ago and I'm hungry. What are they going to say? Dude, you crazy. You've got, you got to eat not only every day but several times a day. Paul is saying, Timothy, you and your people got to be constantly nourished on the truth of God's Word. You can't just be this once a week thing. This week in my quiet times, I read Psalm chapter 1. It made me think about this constantly nourished on God's Word idea. It says there, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates. That really means the idea of chewing the cud. Just like a cow chews grass and swallows it, and then, I know it's kind of gross, but then he chews on it a little more, like all day long. He says, that's what you need to do with my, my word. Who, Blessed is the one who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. That person who's constantly feeding on the truth of God's Word. I think about that verse when I look behind our house. There's a field out there. And in the, the heat of summer before monsoons, the field is full of dead grass. But there's one tree out there that 
that flourishes, and it's because right next to it there's this water drainway that's always got at least some moisture from throughout the year in there, and that tree is thriving when everything else around it is dead, because why? It's got its roots in the water. He's saying you want to be like that. Keep feeding on God's Word, because the best defense against all the false teaching out there is a steady diet of the truth. That's the best defense. Just like the Secret Service guys who try to spot counterfeit dollar bills, they spend their time studying the real ones so that when a false one comes across, they say that one doesn't match up. The best defense is a steady diet of the truth. I want to take you guys back to a quote we shared a couple weeks ago because it applies again. Thomas Constable from the Dallas Theological Seminary said, we should be creative in delivering the message but we must not be creative in the content of the message. We are in the delivery business, not in the manufacturing business. You understand that? God has given us the message. It's our job to deliver it, not to change it. A steady diet of the truth. I think about this and I think, how, do, how does this relate with Christian books? I read a lot of good Christian books. I, I've learned a lot from Christian books, but I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, we should visit many good books, but we should live in the Word of God. If you read Christian books more than you're in your Word of God, you probably need to tweak something. Read them, but live in that Word of God. That needs to be our source of sustenance. I talked to a gal in the church this week that was asking some really good questions about how do I know if this promise here applies to me today? You ever have questions like that? Or how do I understand this? I want to give you a great resource. If that's you and you're saying, I want to read my Bible more, but I have trouble understanding large parts of it, I told her about a book called Living by the Book by Howard Hendricks. He too was a professor at Dallas. And what Howard does in that book is helps us understand how to observe what we read in the Bible, how to interpret it, and then how to apply it to our lives. It's one of the best books I've ever read. So right there you can see, yes, read Christian books. That is a Christian book, but live. Live in the Bible. If you're not, and it's because you need to learn more how to, how to study it for yourself, talk to one of us at the church. That's what we're here for. We want each one of you to be able to feed on that word throughout the week. How many parents have ever sat down at the dinner table? You prepare a nice dinner. You sit down. You pray. And before one of the kids even takes one bite, they say, I'm full. Have you ever had that situation? No? We have, okay? It happens sometimes at our house because... And this is what it usually goes like. You're full. How can you be full? Oh, I had some of those spicy Funyuns after I got home from school. Well, let me see the bag. Okay, that bag was full. Now there's like three left. <laughs> I know why you're full. You filled up on junk food, right? You get full of junk food, you don't have room for the good food. I think it's true the other way, too. If you fill yourself with healthy food from God's Word... You won't have so much room and taste left over for the junk that's out there. Because you're satisfied on the truth of God's Word. Think about God's Word and God's voice in our lives. And I thought about imprinting. I want to show you a picture here. 
What you have there is Joe Hutto in the background. You see his ball cap, like the silhouette almost. Can you see him? Kind of camouflaged. Okay. And then you got in the front a young turkey called a poult. I never knew they were called that. That's where we get poultry. Young, young turkeys called a poult. And you know about imprinting, right? It's how a young bird attaches to its, its mother, right? It's through movement and sound and smell. Well, Joe Hutto found a way to get the, the poults to imprint on him. What he would do is, as they were still in the egg and they were incubating, he would talk to them in Turkey and English. I guess you could call it Turkish. <laughs> he talked to them, <laughs> and he made sure that as soon as they cracked out of that egg, he was the first thing they saw. And when they saw him, he'd talk to him again. And they'd come over to him and nuzzle up next to his face. And from that moment on, they were attached to him. Like they were his little poults. But scientists have also looked at this process and talked about how there are risks involved when you imprint a bird on something that's not its mother. That can be dangerous for the baby. So it's not something to, to treat lightly. You know what that made me think about? made me think about how important it is that as followers of Jesus, we are imprinted on Him. You know what it said in John chapter 10? Switching the metaphor from turkeys to sheep. He said, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. He's saying, I'm the shepherd. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. When he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out, when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. You want to avoid following false teaching and strange teaching down a dark place? Become so imprinted on Jesus by spending time with him and God's word and in prayer, that when that false teaching comes along, you sniff it out right away and say, that ain't my Savior. I am not going down that path. I'm imprinted on my Lord. Because the false teachers are out there. They're out there. Even in the church, they're out there. Second Timothy chapter 4, Paul warned Timothy, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. He's saying, Timothy, beware of people that will only listen to teaching that they want to hear. And he said, beware of becoming that kind of teacher. I like what Tim Keller said. He said, if you, if you throw away the Bible because some of the things God says make you uncomfortable, that is to assume that if there is a God, He would never say anything that offends you. Listen, my God says some things that, that trouble me sometimes. I read some things in there that make me uncomfortable. I have a choice at that moment. I say... A, I either throw it away and walk down to where I can hear something that makes me more comfortable, or I can say, hey, your God, 
I'm your creation. Even though this makes me uncomfortable, help me to understand it and to follow you in faith. I like what A.W. Tozer said about this. He said, we cannot afford to let down our Christian standards just to hold the interest of people who want to go to hell and still belong to a church. We can't do it. Number one, it would be disobedient to God. Number two, it would be the most unloving thing we could do to those people that come to us. Rather than giving them the life-saving message they need, let's water things down, keep you comfortable as you walk on your path to hell. We can't do it. We've got to hold on to the truths of God's Word. Amen? Okay, so you got to eat the good stuff. you also got to avoid the junk food. Right? That's where he goes on in 7a. He says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. You remember some of these silly nonsense that was going around the church in Ephesus. There were people preaching that you shouldn't get married and you shouldn't eat certain foods. And, and Timothy said to them, hey, God made these foods. God made marriage. As long as you use them properly and out of a heart of gratitude and thankfulness for God, enjoy them. Let them be a cause of your worship. But don't, don't give in to these godless myths and old wives' tales. Don't eat the spiritual junk food that's out there. Don't fill up on it. How many of you guys watched the Super Bowl a couple weeks ago? That was the most indifferent look to the Super Bowl I've ever seen. You don't like football, do you? <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Tom Brady won his fifth Super Bowl as a 39-year-old quarterback. 39. That's ancient in the NFL world. Makes me feel old because I'm already older than that. But listen, at 39, he came back from a 28-3 deficit in the third quarter. Largest comeback in NFL history in the Super Bowl. Some people look at the score. It was mid-third quarter, and they say statistically the chance of the Patriots winning the game at that point was 0.03% chance of winning, and they did it. So he won his fifth Super Bowl. He's got more rings as a quarterback in the Super Bowl than any, anyone else. He's got the largest comeback. He's got the most yards, completions, and touchdowns in the Super Bowl. Listen to what the author of the article said. Greg Bishop said this, What's remarkable and largely without precedent is that Brady turned in one of his best seasons at an age when most elite quarterbacks, Cough, Peyton Manning, Cough, he really said that, are floating wobbly spirals into retirement. Tom Brady has a goal to play till he's 45. Wouldn't that be something? And you know, part of his plan includes a diet that excludes certain things. He's a plant-based diet, has no dairy, no caffeine, no white flour, no iodized salt, and no white sugar. I don't know if I could do it. But you know what his trainer says? He says, I don't think people believed us when we said Tom could play to 45 or beyond. But Tommy and I, we believe it. For Tom Brady, part of his key to perseverance and success is some of what he leaves out of his diet. 
Some of what Paul's saying to the church, you want to grow in Christ and become more like Him, you've got to start being more discerning about what you let in here. Don't believe everything you read. Put it up against God's Word and say, does it match? And if not, don't spend any time on it. Get back to the good food. My friend Andrew Zahn, I went to school with him in Ohio. He saw this this week and, and shared it with me. Can you read what that says? Was that a subway near him? It says, please help stop diabetes. Free cookie when you donate one dollar for a diabetes fund. <laughs> Why do we laugh? Because they're selling sugar-filled cookies to fight a disease which is sometimes brought on by too much sugar. I thought about that, and I thought, isn't that what it's like when we tell God, God, I want to become more like Jesus. I want to give you all my heart. I want to worship you. But we continue to fill our minds and our hearts with trash. It's just as silly. It's just as pointless. When we say, help me become more like Jesus... The next step is to shut out the junk food, pull out my Bible, and pray, God, help this to work its way, not only in me, but out of me. Next, there's proper spiritual exercise. That was all about the nourishment. In 7b, Paul says, rather train yourself to be godly. The word train there comes from gymnazo, where we get gymnasium. And the idea back in their minds was the early Olympics. Young men would train year-round for that crown. And they would train hard. They would train naked. They would literally get everything out of the way that could hinder them from achieving success. They, they trained hard. He, he says, train yourself to be godly. That's where I get the idea I started with. Godliness doesn't come automatically. It requires some work, some training, just like the athlete. Think about all the hours Michael Phelps spends in the swimming pool. You know, we all see the picture on the front of Sports Illustrated with his 20-some medals. None of us are with him for the hours and hours he spends right in the valley here in the pool. He trained for that. We've got to train ourselves to be godly. He says, for physical training is of some value, it does have some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. What's he doing? He's using physical training as a launch point to talk to us about spiritual training. When I think about physical training, I think about the World Marathon Challenge. I don't know how, how many of you guys have heard of that. I want to show you a picture here. This is Mike Wardian from Virginia. He is 42 years old. And this year, from January 23rd to January 29th, he ran seven marathons, one on each continent. He said for the first four days, he got eight hours of sleep. After the seventh one, he ran 16 more miles just to make it an even 200. 
He's like Stephen. He likes even numbers. <laughs> have to talk to Steve about that. He doesn't like his volume at 13 or 15, it's 14. <laughs> I love you, man. <laughs> but listen, he beat 32 other people that I guess were evidently doing the same thing with him. Imagine that. Seven marathons, seven continents, seven days. And he shattered the previous record by 46 minutes per race. It was like two hours and something per marathon, seven times. He did Antarctica, Chile, Miami, Madrid, Marrakech, Dubai, and Sydney. Now, how many of you guys think, like, he just woke up one day near the end of 2016 and was like, hmm, I think it'd be great to run the World Marathon Challenge in January. Let's do it. Let's make that a resolution. This is a couple weeks from now. Let's do it. No. You know, they asked him how many miles he wanted to run in 2017, this year. You know what he said? He said, last year I ran 4,500 miles. This year I'd like to run more. He ran so much, and you can look at him, you can, you can see a little bit why. He said, people often say, run, Forrest, run. He said, they, they said, how do you feel about that? He said, I just go with it. 4,500 miles of training to get ready for this seven-day experience. I read that and I think, man, what if we looked at our spiritual training like that? Instead of waiting for it to come automatically, that somehow automatically I'm going to grow in my obedience to Jesus. Let's start training for that. But I'd also point out, Paul says that physical exercise has some value. Let's go back to the verse. Paul is no ascetic who writes out the value of physical training. He said it's of some value. So the question is, how do we keep it in context? How do we exercise this temple of God without allowing exercise to become an idol? I read a, read a great article by David Mathis this week. It was called, Do You Exercise Like a Non-Believer? And he suggested a couple prayers for the believer who exercises. He said, one, thank, thank God for a body that's able to exercise. Thank Him for the body which is His temple. Yes. But then He threw these prayers out, and I like these. He said, Father, please give me the will to overcome laziness tomorrow morning, lace up my shoes, and take the first step, and then work such discipline throughout my life in the fight against sin. Father, give me the drive to push my body beyond what is merely comfortable to discipline my body and keep it under control and work in me by your Spirit so that physical training serves the ripening of the spiritual fruit of self-control. Father, loosen my grip on my own performance and results and personal goals. May my exercise not ultimately be about me, but about my increased enjoyment of Jesus. Father, guard me from valuing bodily training more than godliness. Rather, make these efforts holy through my acting in faith so that this exercise serves my holiness instead of competing with it. And the final one, Father, grant that I would know you and enjoy you more through pushing my body in this way. Let me feel your pleasure through this natural gift so that I am spiritually satisfied enough to sacrifice my own preferences and personal routines to meet the needs of others. 
Those are great prayers to help us keep that in balance. But if you're like me, you hear spiritual training, you say, what's that look like? I think physical training, and it's real concrete. Like I think about running or lifting weights or swimming or whatever you do. What is spiritual training? And lots of different people have broken it down many different ways, but the, the man I mentioned earlier who's preparing for baptism and wants to learn more what it looks like to walk with Jesus every day, we're going to go through a book called Disciplines of a Godly Man by R. Kent Hughes, an author I respect greatly because of his love for God's Word. In that book, when he talks about spiritual disciplines, Here's some of the ones he mentions. They may spark something in your life. As you hear this list, think about, hey, am I training in this area? How is my training in this area? Which areas am I strong in right now? Which areas need some growth? The discipline of godliness, purity, marriage, if you're married, fatherhood, friendship, mind. That one's all about filling my mind with God's word. Devotion, prayer, worship, integrity. My person of my word, am I the same here as I am there? Tongue, how's my speech work? How's my work habits? Perseverance, do I persevere or do I give up when things get tough? Church, church, that's an interesting one. Sometimes in our culture, we think church is all about me. Arkent Hughes presents it as a discipline of godliness. Because you know what? There are going to be weeks where it's hard to be a part of the body of Christ. But, but the Bible says Jesus is the head. He says, don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together. There are benefits for you, but ultimately your obedience is for my glory and the good of my body. Leadership, giving, witness, and ministry. Those are some of the disciplines we're going to be talking about as we meet together. One of my favorite parts about sports is if you ever get to listen to the coach at halftime. You ever either been in a locker room at halftime when the coach is encouraging his players or seen it on TV? It's awesome. It is awesome. It, it gets me going. Listen, Paul, I want you... I want you to maybe rehear some of the verses he's spoken in the New Testament. I want you to picture him as the coach at halftime in the locker room with the church. And I pray this will inspire you like it inspired me. 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. One more, Philippians 2. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. Some of us needed that pep talk from Paul 
We all need it from time to time. We get in our ruts. Just like in physical training. Paul's saying, get out of that rut. But the good news is, you don't have to do it alone. You do not have to do it alone. We're talking about training for godliness. You think, man, godliness. How in the world do I become godly? Not through man-made religion. And it's not through man's power. The source of godliness is Jesus. It's a person. Jesus Christ. That's why even in this same book, back in 1 Timothy 3, you remember Paul had said, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. You say, all right, what's the, where's it, where's it spring from? I want to be godly. Where's it spring from? How? Very next words. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Who's that about? Hello? Jesus. Jesus. You want to know where godliness comes from? It comes from Jesus. That's why he said in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And he put the two ideas together of it requires effort, but it's only through Christ. What you see is cooperating willingly and sometimes strenuously with what Christ is doing in me. And saying, let's go. Let's strive for godliness. I want to close with the motivation. It takes motivation to keep training, right? I saw a picture on Facebook this week of an elliptical machine. It's $2,000. This is a special model because it holds two suit coats, <laughs> four pairs of pants, and three shirts. How many of us have exercise machines around our houses that hold clothes? <laughs> what happened? Somewhere along the way we got excited and motivated and said, I'm going to use that machine. And then somewhere along the way the motivation zipped out and it became a clothes hanger, right? So how do we stay motivated in our spiritual training? Verse 10, this is where we'll close. That is why we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people and especially of those who believe. Labor, the word there is talking about like hard physical labor. Any of you guys grow up on a farm or in farm country? You know about some hard labor, right? My friend Joe was the strongest kid in school because every day after school he'd go home and bale hay. Labor. Labor that makes you sweat. That's the word. Strive. Agonizomai is the Greek word. What, what word do you hear in there? Agony. You know, it, it's leaving it all out there. 
It's like when you watch the sprints in the Olympics and you see the, the close-ups of their faces as they're crossing. Their faces don't look pretty at that moment, do they? They're like all grimaced up and it's like, man, they're leaving everything out there for that sprint. He's, these are the words he's using for our service for God. He's saying, why would I do that? Why would I labor? Why would I strive? Because my hope is in the living God. That's why. You think about hope in the living God, I think about a couple things. I think about right now. Right now. You know what Jesus said eternal life was? He said, this is eternal life that they may know you and the one you have sent. Eternal life is knowing the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. A lot of us think eternal life starts someday, the moment we die. Uh -uh. Eternal life starts the moment you place your trust in Jesus Christ and you enter into a personal relationship with the God of the universe. So hope isn't just something I wait for someday. It's like, I got this relationship right now, and because of that, I don't want any sin, anything to keep me from growing closer in that walk. Anything that's getting in the way, keeping me from growing in obedience and love in this relationship, it's gone because I find my hope in this relationship. But yes, it does have a future tense as well. I continually hope for that day where as the Beatitudes say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. One day I'm going to see Him. And that keeps me going through all the struggles and all the training and all the warfare. Because one day it's going to become crystal clear how worth it it really is. See, God knows we've got to have something to hope for, to shoot for, to keep going. The marathoner we talked about earlier, you know one thing that keeps him going? He said, one day I hope to run a marathon on the moon. That guy sets big goals. guy with big goals like that can do seven marathons in seven days. Well, one day I hope to see God. What kind of perseverance and passion could that bring to my life if I hold on to that? Hope in the living God, but also looking backwards, what Jesus has done for us at the cross. He goes on, he says, who is the Savior of all people and especially of those who believe. That sets our eyes back to the cross. What does it mean He's the Savior of all people? Is it that everybody is saved? Gets that relationship with God? Goes to heaven? No, we know that's not true. John 3.18, Jesus Himself said, Whoever believes in Him, in Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. It can't be universalism. It doesn't jive with the rest of the Bible. Some people say He's the Savior of all in the sense that He, he preserves us all. That's another possible translation of, of saves. Like the idea that He sends rain on the, the good and the wicked. All of us experience some of His goodness. Only believers experience forever into eternity. Others look at it and say he, it means He's the Savior of all in the sense that He died for all 
But when it says especially of those who believe, it means he, he died for all, but saves only those who believe. I'd encourage you to study it for yourself. It's one of those tough passages. But the bottom line is what he's doing here, he's taking us, pointing our eyes to the cross, and he's saying, you're looking for motivation to labor and strive, believer? Put your hope in the living God and look back at your Savior who gave it all for you. Set your eyes on the author and finisher of your faith, believer, and keep on because he did. And he's worth it. 